Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and you're listening to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. All right, y'all, Tuesday is your last chance to vote on whether or not a new governor should finish out the last year of Governor Gavin Newsom's term. And right now, the top candidate to replace him is Larry Elder, a conservative talk radio host who wants to reverse just about everything Democrats have done. But how much could he actually do? It's not as if a Republican could suddenly wave a wand and make California the state it was 40 years ago. But they could definitely do some things. And I think that this is the reason that you see such attention being paid to this. Today, what a Republican governor of California could accomplish in just a year's time. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Okay, my first question for you, Marisa, how big of a change would that B for California if Larry Elder wins. How big of a change was it when Trump took over from Obama? Marisa Lagos is a political correspondent for KQED and host of the Political Breakdown podcast. 
I think there's a lot of similarities there, right? He's an outsider. He's kind of made a name saying outrageous things. I think a lot of the people who support him like the fact that he says outrageous things. And he is a staunch, he calls himself libertarian conservative. We would be going from arguably one of the most progressive governors we've ever had to one of the most conservative. And when would a new governor take office? How long would they serve at minimum to carry out their agenda? Yeah, so depending on exactly when the election is certified, it would take uh, some weeks after that. So best bet is like late October is when a new governor would be sworn in and they would hold office until the end of Newsom's term, which, you know, ends at the end of next year. So they would essentially hit the ground and be running for re-election already because we have an election next year. When people run for office, they make all kinds of promises on the campaign trail, and a lot of times they don't really actually deliver on them. So how seriously should we actually take what these candidates are saying, including Larry Elder? Well, I think there's kind of two different questions. Like one is what would they try to do? And one is could they do everything? I mean, no governor can do everything they want to do. I mean, Newsom hasn't solved homelessness or the housing crisis or wildfires, right? Um, So I think that you know, it's not to say that if Larry Elder were governor, we would suddenly have a zero dollar minimum wage and, and women wouldn't have protections in the workforce. Um, but there are certainly a, a, just an array of things that a governor has power over, both bureaucratic, uh, legislative, appointment wise, executive orders. It's a hard question to answer, but it, it certainly I would say not everything, but not nothing either. So one big tool a governor has is the executive order. Governor Newsom has used them on all kinds of issues, especially when it comes to the pandemic. What actions from the governor around COVID are under threat if he loses the recall election and is replaced by a Republican? Almost all of what we might think of as California's COVID-19 response was put into motion by executive action. I gave Mike Janest a call. I'm the former director of the Department of Finance. I took that job under Governor Schwarzenegger. And I was- so he's a Republican. And he essentially said, I mean, if it's executive actions, it could happen right away. You could immediately get rid of all the COVID mandates, at least the ones at the state level. Any emergency or executive action that this governor has taken could be undone on day one of the new governor. Everything from vaccine requirements, to, you know, for healthcare workers to vaccine and testing requirements for teachers, down to like questions of, you know, if you live in a county where they haven't gone further, it seems pretty likely that anything the gov- a new governor would do to roll back what Newsom has done would immediately impact you. Um, And I think there's also some questions, legal questions, as to whether cities and counties like San Francisco and LA could go further if some of those emergency powers were done away with by a governor. You know, I don't think it's hyperbole to say that we could see a more similar kind of framework to someplace like Texas or Florida basically overnight um, than where we've been at, which is kind of the other end of that spectrum in California under Governor Newsom. You write it, you sign it, you uh, you tear up the old one. I don't think you actually have to do that part. (laughs) But it's pretty simple. And, you know, I mean, there's a reason we have 
systems of government, uh, branches of government, right? And certainly some of this stuff could be challenged in court um, or the legislature could try to override the governor. But when it comes to the kind of bulk of our COVID-19 response here in California, um, most of that has really happened under the governor's authority, not as a sort of co-equal branches of government coming together and, and coming to a decision and putting it into writing and legislation. I want to talk about that now um, and the process of making laws, which, of course, is mainly up to the state legislature, which is run by Democrats. But the governor has the power to sign or veto bills that get passed. How much power would a Republican governor have over the agenda of a Democratic state legislature? So that's a really interesting question because we've never had a situation like this, at least not in my lifetime, where one party had a supermajority of the legislature. So you can't look back to Schwarzenegger, for example, and say, well, he was a Republican with a Democratic a legislature. Yeah, he was, but they didn't have the numbers to override a veto. So I, I think, though, that once you get into the nitty gritty, this could get more complicated. It does take two thirds to override a veto. And so... If Democrats wanted to just completely stymie anything that a new governor did, they would all have to stick together all the time. And, you know, that could be challenging. We've seen this on most of the hot button issues, right? Climate change legislation, anything to do with labor and business and workers' rights, COVID-19 response to some extent, police reform, certainly criminal justice reform. You know, you already see schisms within this Democratic legislature among on those issues because, you know, it probably looks very different if you're a Democrat representing a rural area outside Fresno than somebody representing an urban area like San Francisco or even L.A. So I think a lot of the more ambitious things that especially progressives would be hoping to get done in a final year of in the final year of Newsom's, or some people might hope is his first term, could be absolutely curbed. And there probably wouldn't be a good reason to take up some of those fights because you would risk sort of the political downside of splitting your base and, and your party when you would want to be spending a lot of time kind of just fighting against the agenda of somebody who a lot of Democrats would characterize as extreme. And there's also, of course, the state budget, where billions of dollars are at stake every year. How does that process work, and how might it be affected with a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature? Yeah, so folks I talk to in administrations from both parties think that the biggest thing that's likely to happen is a stalemate. The way the budget works is that every fall, basically around the time a new governor could be getting sworn in, they are meeting with their Department of Finance to shape this huge policy document that, you know, proposes to the legislature how to spend the tens of billions of dollars that make up our budget every year. And they have to propose that officially in January. They have to revise it by May when they have a better sense of revenues. And the legislature is supposed to pass it um, by June and it goes into effect in July. We had a year where the budget under Schwarzenegger didn't get done until the fall, and the state had to go so far as to issue IOUs to vendors. We just ran out of cash because it hadn't been allocated. I think that that's not an unlikely scenario if you had someone like Larry Elder coming head to head with a Democratic legislature that would likely disagree with a lot of the things that he would want to put forward. 
And I think that it's pretty likely that they would be spending a lot of time pushing back on that and potentially just saying, we're not going to pass anything like this um, because, you know, we don't think you'll be around that long. And we might rather take that risk of IOUs again or whatever that would look like. Because, you know, a lot of programs still do just kind of go on autopilot, but it's not good. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for the state. It's not good for state workers. If you had a situation where a new governor was proposing deep cuts in, in, say, public school spending, or it was just clear that they were at such an impasse that there might not be a budget passed, those districts have to balance their budget. So they would probably have to make deep cuts, according to someone like Dana Williamson, who worked for Jerry Brown. Having a delay in a budget passing will cause huge impacts, and schools have to budget based on decisions making at the state. After school programs, to school nutrition, and including staffing. So you see layoffs, you see programs stop, you see folks not being able to access services. Um, so it, it really does have a dramatic impact on government services. It could just create a really chaotic situation for any organization or entity that relies on the state to help fund whatever they do um, and that needs the state to just to do its job in order to get a sense of the picture. I mean, it's not even just about the numbers. It's just about like the reliability of knowing that a budget is coming and that it won't be so out of the ordinary from something that they've worked under in years past. Okay, so there's executive orders, there's the lawmaking process. Is there anything else that a new Republican governor could do that maybe isn't as visible as those things? Yeah, so I talked to somebody who who used to run a huge state department, and she kind of made the point that there's there's two ways a new administration who didn't like essentially a lot of the policies and laws on the books, but maybe didn't have the ability to go get them changed to the legislature, could really gum up the works. Um, one is to appoint incompetent people who just don't understand the way things work. And she said, you know, that this is an area where you can make a billion dollar mistake because these are multi-billion dollar agencies. I also talked to folks about just how if if you do understand how these agencies work, that you can essentially stop most things through simply withholding approval. So in the past couple years, um, California's moved to expand its Medi-Cal coverage, which is essentially public health insurance uh, for low-income people, to undocumented immigrants. They started with children, and then they moved to young adults. And in this year's budget that the governor signed, uh, they expanded that to folks over the age of 65 who are undocumented. So those laws are in statute. They are the law of the land. However, they still require a ton of bureaucracy to kind of put into action. And so folks I talk to who have worked in government say that a new governor could absolutely, either through, you know, not doing some things or actively preventing some things from happening, essentially undercut those laws and make it so difficult uh, to fund those programs that they would essentially not be working anymore. Another potential pitfall that was brought up to me is this idea of brain drain. My colleague Scott Schaefer actually worked on this uh, this issue with me, and he talked to Daniel Zingali. In addition to being Maria Schaefer's staff, I served as his senior advisor. 
So I actually became part of uh, Schwarzenegger's inner circle as well. He's actually worked under, I think, three or four Republican and Democratic governors. So he's seen government through a lot of angles. You know, a lot of people work in a government, you know, in an agency like healthcare services because they believe in the mission of it. And if somebody comes in and really undercuts a lot of the stuff that they've been working on or just tries to kind of prevent them from doing their jobs, that you could see a mass exodus. I think many of the current people are just hanging on out of dedication to fighting the pandemic. If they felt like a new leader came in and didn't have that as a priority, you'll probably have some exodus. And it could lead to us losing people who, you know, will not be cheap to replace. A lot of these people have worked in government for decades and have all that institutional knowledge. And it, and it would it would be a really um, big loss for for the state, uh, Daniels and Gali and others believe. So, Marisa, we just talked about some of the tangible things that a new governor could do in a year, but there's also just the very basic fact that the very Democratic state of California could have a Republican Trump-supporting governor. How would that affect the rest of the country, even if they just served for one year? I think that both parties are looking at this as sort of kind of looking at this as an on-ramp into 22 and the battles we're going to see in the midterms around Congress and kind of Joe Biden's agenda. But it was really important to me to come home today to stand and speak in support of my dear friend, my long-standing friend, a great California leader, a great American leader, Governor Gavin Newsom. I was at an event, you know, with Kamala Harris this week campaigning alongside Newsom, and she made very clear that she sees this as sort of a national referendum. What's happening in Texas, what's happening in Georgia, what's happening around our country with these policies that are about attacking women's rights, reproductive rights, voting rights, workers' rights. So I think that, you know, there's a real fear among Democrats that the reverberations of Newsom losing would be huge and would really kind of undercut some of the enthusiasm we've seen Democrats have in recent years. They think if they can win in California, they can do this anywhere. Well, we will show them you're not going to get this done. Not here. Never. When we think about the national balance of power, obviously we have a 50-50 split in the Senate. And if Newsom were to get booted out and we had a new governor and God forbid something were to happen to Dianne Feinstein, our senior senator, before the end of her term. I mean, Larry Elders promised that he would appoint a Republican to that seat, and that would actually flip the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Um, on the other side, I talked to Republicans who say, look, we know that a governor, Larry Elder, couldn't, you know, change everything in California in a year's time. I mean, a lot of the things, um, a lot of these candidates are talking around criminal justice reform uh, that they oppose. Those were passed by voters. Those are not things that a governor could just come in and undo. However, they could certainly make a lot of appointments to judgeships. Newsom has a moratorium on capital punishment in this state. Every governor has the final word on parole decisions. And what someone like Mike Janess said is, I just hope a Governor Larry Elder would use the bully pulpit to kind of convince Californians to come back to what he sees as the right side of these things. There's a lot of intangible ways that a, a, an executive does set the tone and the debate. And it's 
Not as if a Republican taking over for Newsom um, could suddenly wave a wand and make California the state it was 40 years ago, but they could definitely do some things. And I think that this is the reason that you see such attention being paid to this by folks on both sides of the aisle nationally. Marisa, thank you so much. It is always my pleasure. The last day to vote is Tuesday, September 14. You can vote by mailing in your ballot or by voting in person. Sites are open statewide from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. For more coverage on the recall election, including info on the voting process, go to kqed.org recall. Marisa Lagos is a political correspondent for KQED and host of the Political Breakdown podcast. This episode of The Bay was produced and cut by our editor, Alan Montecilio. It was scored and produced by Christopher Beale. Our podcast leadership team includes Erica Aguilar, Jessica Placek, Vinnie Tong, Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. And I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. That's it for me. Our editor, Alan Montecilio, and I will be taking turns in the host chair for the next couple of months. I will catch you from the producer's chair. Till then, peace. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.